The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Leah Smart, host of Every Day Better, an award-winning weekly podcast dedicated to personal development. Whether you're looking for ways to shift your mindset or seeking more fulfillment in your life, we've got you covered. Join me as we dive into captivating stories and research-backed ideas that have empowered me and others to lead lives with more clarity and intention. Everyday Better, making growth an everyday practice. Listen to Everyday Better on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the race in my members-only Inner Circle Club. You will receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here's a special offer to my podcast listeners. If you join the Inner Circle today at NewtCenterCircle.com and sign up for a one- or two-year membership, I'll send you a free, personally autographed copy of my book, Gettysburg, and a VIP Fast Pass to my live events. Join my inner circle today at NewtsInnerCircle.com. Use the code FREEBOOK at checkout. Sign up today at NewtsInnerCircle.com. Code FREEBOOK. This offer ends January 31st. On this episode of Newt's World... When the idea of gene therapy really... I wanted to develop treatments for these diseases, not just understand them. The child in Miami has thrown away his cane, which was his lifelong dream, his blind cane, and um, is doing things that he never could do before. There are many times when I began to feel like a pioneer who was trying to move west on a poorly defined trail. On this episode of Newt's World, we're going to meet three engaging and passionate doctors who are on the cutting edge of medical breakthroughs using gene therapy. Dr. Jim Wilson, Dr. Catherine High, and Dr. Gene Bennett. All three were honored last year by Sanford Health as nominees for their million-dollar Lorraine Cross Award. 
an award that's given for innovative breakthroughs in medicine or science that has the ability to transform global health and change lives. I work with Sanford as an advisor. I was there at the award ceremony. Frankly, I left the evening amazed, amazed by the potential of gene therapy to cure disease, even more amazed by the determination of these doctors and amazed by the courage of their patients. That's why I want to focus this episode of Newt's World, letting them tell their stories. You're going to hear the doctor's early struggles in the field, you know, starting out in medical school or a lab environment, only to suddenly have funding for gene therapy dry up. There they were. They thought they knew the entire future of their lives, and suddenly the roadmap was destroyed as funding changed. But they believed so much in what they were doing, they just persevered. And they've made an incredible difference in many people's lives. We're also going to hear about the patients they've treated and the miraculous outcomes they've experienced after years of clinical trials. I want you to close your eyes for a minute while you're listening so you'll understand what I mean by miraculous. Imagine you're a child. You're born with a genetic defect and you can't see. So keep close your eyes. Think about that. You're going to spend the entire rest of your life at three or four or five years of age not being able to see. And suddenly, somebody finds some breakthroughs, and you can see. Because due to these breakthroughs, Christian can see. Before I introduce my first guest, Dr. Wilson, I want you to imagine for the moment being the parent of a child who is missing a chromosome that contains a specific gene UBE3A. But just that one mutation affects the quality of your child's life. That is Alison Barron's story, a mother of a beautiful daughter named Quincy. My name is Alison Brent, and I'm the mother of a four-year-old little girl. Her name is Quincy, who was diagnosed with a rare monogenetic disorder called Angelman syndrome. It's neurogenetic, which means that she's missing a single gene, and that ultimately results in her having a lot of challenges. She is what we call ataxic, or she has real significant balance issues. Her body is moving a lot. And when she's trying to walk, she's trying to figure out where her body is in space and how does she balance herself so she can walk safely. Every time we take a step, we tell ourselves to activate one leg and relax the other leg. And she doesn't have that relaxation. So really learning that motor plan and learning how to do very gross things like walking or very fine things like pointing. It's very difficult for kids like Quincy. Those challenges are something that she is incredibly inspiring to face because she fights them every day with so much determination and effort. She knows she's different. She knows things are harder for her. And she'll do 35 hours a week of physical therapy in order to do her best to keep up with her peers. Finding Dr. Wilson was the biggest blessing that has probably ever happened to our family and I would venture to say our community. What happened was my daughter was diagnosed with Angelman syndrome in 2014. And so I said, who cured cystic fibrosis? And I need to find this person. And a, a press release came out as I was looking for who this was, saying that somebody was giving a lecture, and it was the person who pioneered gene therapy and cured cystic fibrosis. And I was like, I need to meet this person. And I looked in the press release, and I found his name, Dr. James Wilson. And so I sent him an email, a very brief email describing myself and describing Quincy, and asked him if he would be willing to have a conversation. 
I got a response back from him one hour later on a Sunday night at 10.30 p.m. that said, when are you available to talk this week? The next day, we got on the phone and we talked about what Angelman syndrome was. He had never heard of it. We explained what it was and how it could be treated and what the literature was that was available for Angelman syndrome. And he said, this is incredibly promising. I have never heard of it, but I'm going to do my due diligence and I'm going to look into it. Can you come to Philadelphia and meet with us in person? And I said, I can be there in 90 minutes. And so we set up a meeting for him and about 15 other scientists around the world to meet and talk about Angelman syndrome and all of the science behind it. And at the end of the meeting, there was a consensus that he felt that he could treat Angelman syndrome. He's such a personable man, and he has been very close not only to our community, but to my family. He has reached out to us on numerous occasions just because he is enamored and he's touched by Quincy. And so because of that, the personality that he has is all business. Let's get to the point and let's fix this disorder because we can. Because of her challenges and because of the coordination issues that she has, Quincy can't talk because her tongue and her face and all the muscles required in the mouth, her lips, all of that have to be coordinated. And coordination is really hard for kids with Angelman syndrome. And because of that, she has a lot she wants to say. And when you ask her to talk, she opens her mouth and tries to talk, but she can't. So what we can provide her with is she wears an iPad. And that iPad has a symbol system, and she can point to symbols of words that she wants to say. And then her voice, she wears all day, and she carries that on her body. So if she has something she'd like to say, she has to point to a symbol. And so now she's been able to tell us all the things she's thinking about, like she wants a hug, or she's hungry, or she's thirsty, or she's tired, or her tummy hurts. And those are all things she couldn't do. When you have a kid who has so much that they want to say, And it's so hard for them to let that out. All you want to do is provide for them to make that easier so that they can let out the words that are in there. But things are either possible or impossible, and there's no in between. And Dr. Wilson realizes it's possible, and he's not going to stop until he is successful. And he believes that he can treat children with rare neurogenetic disorders. And I feel full-heartedly that the success of gene therapy is really because of him. Now I want to introduce you to Dr. Jim Wilson, who treated Quincy in our opening story. He's considered the godfather of gene therapy due to his pioneering innovations and his lifelong commitment to new discoveries in this field. Well, I was interested in science uh, from the very beginning, but when I was at a point where I was considering graduate school or what to do after college, I felt that it was important to me that the work that I did would be more directly related to helping people and particularly in the area of medicine. So I decided to enter into a combined MD and a PhD program at the University of Michigan. So my initial project was to define the molecular basis of a rare neurologic disease called the Lesch-Nyan syndrome. It was quite exciting, incredibly productive time in my life where I was able to participate in cutting-edge molecular science, but also get to know the patients, these young boys with this disease, and their families. One of these young boys that I got to know very well because we would transport him back and forth from his home in North Carolina to the Clinical Research Center at the University of Michigan. During one of his trips with us, I was able to identify 
the mutation that causes disease. And it was this kind of insight that one rarely gets in science, these so-called eureka moments, and was quite proud of the accomplishment. And it was widely acclaimed because it was cutting edge at the time. And I remember when I brought him back home to meet with his mother, who would pick him up at the Raleigh-Durham airplane terminal. And I was so excited to meet with her and to share with her that we identified the mutation that caused his son's disease. And, and she looked at me and asked a very probing question, but a very simple question. How is this going to help my son? There was just silence. And I felt like I was punched in the stomach, not by her, but by my own kind of view and how excited I was about the work, but realizing that, that its impact was quite marginal. And it was really at that moment I decided that whatever I was going to do going forward, that I wanted to develop treatments for these diseases, not just understand them, when the idea of gene therapy really surfaced in a way that I could not only treat this young man, who are clearly too late to do that, but others with diseases like his and other genetic diseases. And therein started my journey. How difficult was it to find support? As I understand it, at the time you're doing it, this is really a brand new approach and sort of exploring an unknown territory. When it started back in the late 80s, there was a lot of enthusiasm, almost unbridled enthusiasm for what we were doing in that the expectations were quite high and ended up being unrealistic. And what we did at the time, though, was to use whatever technology, viruses, so-called viruses, that were available and spent years to try to attenuate them and incorporate normal genes and then into the clinic to see if they would work. And during that period of the 90s, there was a tremendous amount of activity in moving gene therapy into the clinic. But what we learned at the really the turn of the century was that the technology we had available to us at the time was not up to the task. And there were clinical trials that essentially didn't succeed. In fact, none of them were succeeding. And unfortunately, there were several examples where there were tragic consequences where our attempt to try to benefit someone led to toxicity, in particular, a young man by the name of Jesse Gelsinger, who courageously volunteered to participate in one of the trials conducted here at Penn, had an unexpected reaction to this experiment and eventually died from it. And it was about that time that there were sort of other events that occurred that led to a dramatic erosion of support for the field. In fact, it was very hard to get any support right around the turn of the century. So new, the challenging time and the time that was sort of critical to get where we are today was that first decade, kind of 2000 to 2010, where we really had no support, but a few of us still believed in the concept and just continued to sort of plug away and quietly made some important discoveries during that period of time that sort of set the stage for where we are right now. Jim Wilson's breakthrough in developing a benign virus delivery system suddenly created enormous new opportunities in gene therapy and in that sense, Wilson, in many ways, really was the godfather. When we come back, we'll meet Dr. Gene Bennett, one of the doctors who built upon Dr. Wilson's breakthroughs, and find out why her trials with dogs 
led to a cure for blindness. Dr. Catherine High and Dr. Jean Bennett began working together in 1990. 27 years later, they succeeded in getting the first gene therapy medication approved by the Food and Drug Administration. Their story is one of determination and commitment to bring a treatment that cured a form of blindness to market, but it wasn't without struggle along the way. Here, Dr. Bennett explains the early years that she spent working with dogs in clinical trials. My collaborators at University of Pennsylvania in the vet school had the wisdom early on of studying dogs that were born blind in order to be able to better understand human blindness, to use them as models of human blindness. That was a unique view and plan that they had because usually kennel clubs and other organizations which breed dogs breed out genetic problems such as blindness or hip dysplasia and so forth, and people get rid of those animals. But here this uh, group was searching for them as models because dogs, just like humans, there are dogs that are born spontaneously blind or with other deficits. And there was a a pet owner who owned a very large dog, a Swedish Briard dog. His name was Merlin. And they brought him over to the clinic and said, are you interested in our dog? And they said, of course, yes. They borrowed the dog and bred him with one of their small, normal-sighted laboratory dogs. And then crossbred him back to that dog, realizing that this original owner's dog was probably had an autosomal recessive disease. That means it's a disease where two different alleles are required to be affected. You need two bad genes in order to get a disease. And so they did what people commonly do in the laboratory with mice. It's a lot easier with mice, but they did a back cross with the dogs in order to see if they would then generate puppies that had the same sort of blindness as the original founder dog. And lo and behold, they had three puppies that were born. All three of them were blind. And in fact, we named them Lancelot, Guinevere, and King Arthur because their grandfather had been named Merlin. And these were the puppies that we then used to test whether gene therapy could reverse their blindness. And that was what led to the Eureka moment. These dogs were maintained by the veterinary school at University of Pennsylvania by my collaborators, Greg Ackland and Gus Aguirre, and we joined forces together with some other investigators to test the possibility that gene therapy could rescue the vision in these little puppies. And we had three animals available. We went ahead and injected them. And the results were nothing short of miraculous. Within a few weeks, these puppies who 
had to be led to a water bowl because they couldn't see where it was, who would just crunch in a corner because they were scared of bumping themselves if they walked into a door or a wall. Their behavior changed dramatically, and they were playing with each other, catching toys, playing tug-of-war, running around, wagging their tails. It was just a stunning result. And it was the sort of thing which scientists I hardly ever gets to see in a career. It was really a dream result, a eureka moment. <laughs> and unfortunately, at that point in time, it was very difficult to get funding to carry out the next set of steps that we wanted to carry out, which would be to go to a human clinical trial. Next, Dr. Bennett's clinical trials are threatened by a lack of funding across all gene therapy research. An unfairly discharged Marine with a dark secret. A brilliant intelligence officer recovering from tragedy. This unlikely pair are brought together to stop a deadly Russian plot against the heart of the American system. Number one, New York Times bestselling authors Newt Gingrich and Pete Early return with a new series filled with action and intrigue that captures the tensions and divides of America and the world today. Collusion, a novel by Newt Gingrich. Available on Amazon.com and Audible now. Dr. Bennett had developed some promising data with the Swedish Briard dogs, but funding for gene therapy dried up. Then along came her longtime colleague and friend, Dr. Catherine High, with a knock at her door. Here's Dr. High. I went to the CEO of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, where I was working then, and asked if he thought that he could put resources into this. And to my continuing surprise, <laughs> even many years later, after thinking about it for a week, he agreed to do that. And he told me, he said, he said I'm going to invest in gene therapy because if it works, it will be very important for genetic disease. And that means it will be important for children's hospitals. But I have one condition for you, and that is that you cannot use all the resources I'm going to provide to you to work on hemophilia. You have to work on some other genetic diseases that affect children. <laughs> and I said, okay, well, then I know exactly what I'm going to do. Uh, because I had been a longtime colleague of Gene Bennett's uh, in terms of our interest in working on gene therapy approaches, and I knew how great her dog model data was, so she had essentially cured this rare form of inherited blindness in dogs, and I really felt that that would have an excellent chance of translating into success in people. Dr. Bennett. I was totally shocked when she knocked on my office door one day, July 2005, and asked, Jean, how would you like to run a clinical trial at CHOP? <laughs> it, was, it was just shocking. I was not prepared for that at all, but it was just such a wonderfully surprising shock that I responded within milliseconds. And from then on, we've been tied at the hip with this common goal of bringing together our complementary expertise and making this happen safely and fast. So Dr. Catherine High was successful in finding the funding to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. 
Dr. Bennett was ready to move from her trials with dogs to clinical trials with people. The year is 2007. Dr. High explains what happened next. The first three subjects were all adults. That was the agreement that we had reached with both the local and the federal regulatory agencies. And because that looked safe, then after that, we were able to begin enrolling children. So we enrolled 12 people in the phase one, two study, a mix of pediatric and adult participants. And the data looked really strong. And so then the problem became, how do we take the information that we're getting in this clinical trial and set up a way of measuring what we're seeing in a way that's quantitative, reproducible, and convincing to other people so that we can actually get a drug approved. (laughs) So we worked closely, actually, with the regulators to set up a new endpoint. So this is, I think, a very important point because if gene therapy is really to realize all the potential represented in the Human Genome Project, we are going to be tackling diseases that currently have no treatment. And if a disease has no treatment, it means that nobody has figured out what are the clinical endpoints that you have to develop evidence for that will tell other people and the regulators and clinicians and everybody Yes, this drug is working. So that's what we had to tackle. We had to tackle how do we make a novel endpoint for people with this specific clinical condition where they have very diminished sensitivity to light. And if you can't pick up light that's coming in, you may be able to operate okay in a location like on the beach on a bright sunny day, but if you're in the setting of dimmer light, then you can't see. Dr. High and Dr. Bennett worked through these clinical challenges and moved to clinical trials with patients who are diagnosed with this rare disease, Liber congenital amaurosis. The four original patients came from Italy, and in fact, the first two were twins, fraternal twins. The first was a girl, the second was a boy. And they had all been diagnosed with LCA or Labor's congenital amaurosis. That's a disease which a form of impaired vision, which it fits within the classification of retinitis pigmentosa, but it's the most severe form of retinitis pigmentosa because it's found at birth. So babies with LCA don't see the same detail that normal sighted babies would, and they are very, very light impaired. In fact, if they are in a room where they can look at the sun or look at some very bright object, their eyes tend to look in that direction because they don't see regular room lights or they don't see well in in lighting that people use generally in their homes. They are attracted to very, very bright objects. They have very poor resolution, and that's reflected by testing visual acuity. They don't see letters on an eye chart or for children. They don't see pictures that are drawn very largely. They have very poor side vision. And whatever they have, however, 
gets progressively worse because this is also a degenerative condition. As the cells in the retina die off, they lose what they have, even though that's poor to begin with. So these first four Italian, the first three Italians who enrolled in our study were adults as mandated by our local institutional review board who wanted to make sure that this was tested first in individuals who could fully understand what they were agreeing to participate in, give proper informed consent, and to make sure that the intervention was safe enough to then move forward to what are called, quote, vulnerable subjects, i.e. children who may not understand all of the details of the study. So these individuals, the first two individuals were in their 20s when they came here, and the third was 19 years old, and they each stayed for several weeks. They had testing before their injection and after their injection, and then they came for follow-up visits at regular intervals, three months, six months, nine months, a year, and so forth. So it was a just a huge contribution that they gave in terms of their time investment to participate in these studies, which were aimed at both looking at the safety of this intervention and also whether it worked. And of course, these individuals were born severely vision impaired, so they traveled with a family member or two sometimes. We got to know their families really, really well because of all the time that they spent traveling back and forth here. So the first individual who received the injection from Italy was one of those volunteers to have her second eye injected first. And she did not have a family member who could stay here for three months because they all had jobs that required that they be back in Italy for that time period. So we said, why don't you stay with us? And in fact, she stayed in our house and she had the injection. And a couple of days later, she came downstairs and looked in the mirror and said, Mamma Mia! As she saw her face for the first time. It was just amazing watching her learn how to use her new vision from day to day. She'd look out the window and say, what is that? And it would be branches on a tree, or we'd be driving and she'd see a reflection from a pond. Each thing she had to learn what it was. And it was like a child seeing things for the first time, but in fact, she was 28 years old. And telling the brain what that was that the person was seeing. So that was really quite remarkable, and I'll never forget it. (laughs) I think one of the remarkable things about this story, really this journey, is to understand that people with this rare genetic mutation could receive one injection and have their sight restored almost overnight. It's truly a remarkable scientific breakthrough. Dr. Bennett, can you tell us a few stories of patients who were treated and what their experience was? Interestingly enough, there were three patients who had near simultaneous injections around the United States, one in Boston, one in Miami, and one in LA. And I believe it was the Boston patient who was first. The Boston 
patient was injected at Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary, which is a Harvard institution, by Dr. Jason Commander, who's a retinal surgeon, who had actually come here to learn how to do these subretinal injections from my husband. I never tire of hearing these stories. For example, the boy it treated at Mass Eye and Ear now rides his bike and can see things in school and goes to his friend's houses by himself. The child in Miami has thrown away his cane, which was his lifelong dream, his blind cane, and is doing things that he never could do before. The little girl in Los Angeles had her injection just before Halloween, and she was able to go trick-or-treating and could not get over the fact that she could see in the dark. She was not as interested in the Halloween treats as the fact that she could go down the street and see where she was going. The dramatic importance of a scientific breakthrough is that it suddenly sends a signal that maybe there's something really worth investing in. And all of a sudden, more and more people come to an area because they now have hope and they have a practical, realistic, scientific basis for that hope. What we've heard about this story is that it has led to the support of other researchers who are focused on finding cures for blindness. Dr. Bennett, can you tell us how the field has expanded? The availability of Lexterna has already made a difference because people are now educating their ophthalmologists, saying, you know, there is this new drug. Do I qualify? And doctors are realizing that these individuals with these inherited forms of blindness need to be studied and genotyped to see what the genetic basis is of their disease to see if they qualify and also whether they qualify for other studies that we think are going to take place in the near future. So it's also fueled research in developing treatments for the other forms of inherited blindness. There are more than 260 different genetic forms of blindness, and many of these are now targets for developing gene-based therapies, and many of them are, are now actually in clinical trials. So I think it paved a way for other groups to be able to try to develop interventions based on gene delivery. Finally, I think that this is going to be a stepping stone for developing gene-based treatments for blinding diseases that affect a large number of people. I think there are going to be ways to develop an intervention which could address multiple different genetic defects. For example, to target a specific biochemical pathway or a support pathway where a somewhat generic therapy could be delivered which would prevent the disease from progressing based on what we know of the biology of the retina. And so I'm hopeful that this will end up helping a lot of different people who have different forms of blindness. Coming up, we'll hear from a patient whose life was fundamentally changed for the better because of Dr. Bennett and Dr. High's breakthrough discovery. The Westwood One Podcast Network, The Daily Wire's Ben Shapiro Show. What I do see is a system that is wildly broken when a lot of people who were brought here as children and are net benefits to the United States, it takes forever for them to get citizenship, but we're talking blanket amnesty. 
for people who come across the border now. The Ben Shapiro Show. Download and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and the Westwood One Podcast app. Free, free from the Westwood One Podcast Network. We've talked a lot in this episode about the process of going through clinical trials to bring a drug to market. But the reason these doctors do what they do is ultimately to affect the lives of their patients. Here's Dr. Bennett and Dr. High's patient, a teenage musician named Christian. My name is Christian Guardino. I was born with a very rare retinal disease called Leber's congenital amaurosis. And what that is is a very rare disease that causes you to go blind over time. But we didn't know that when I was a baby, what my mom heard when she noticed there was something wrong was that I would have the type of LCA that either improves slightly over time or remains stable. But about 11 years old, we started to notice a decline in my vision, and we were really concerned. So we got tested at the children's hospital. We met Dr. Bennett, and that's where we found out that I would be going completely blind by the time I hit age 15 to 30. I started to get older and I started to see my friends playing outside at nighttime. And I was like, always had to sit inside. I said, Mom, why, why can't I, you know, why can't I play outside? Why can't I go with them? And that's when I really started to notice something was wrong with my vision. I always use music as something to cope with that. You know, my body used my ears over my eyes. But growing up with LCA was hard, mostly because I wanted to do everything else that all the other kids were doing, but I couldn't. I think one of the biggest things that made me want to move forward with the clinical trials, and even though it was experimental and I was very nervous, we've already found out that I'm going to be going blind by the time I hit age 15 to 30. Nothing I could do about it. So there was something I could do about it. I was going to take that opportunity. And there was that hope. And it was all we had. I didn't want to go blind During the gene therapy, we'd go every few weeks for a little bit. It was a lot of visits, and it was a lot of testing. So these people really, really helped me feel a sense of security with that, and I trusted them. Dr. High, Dr. Bennett are all such incredible people, incredible at what they do. They're some of the best doctors I've ever met. So as soon as we took that patch off, I remember at the hotel, I saw these patterns on the floor. I was like, what, what? What what's on the floor? What what's going on over here? I I've been to this hotel for years before the gene therapy. I was like, I never remembered any patterns on this floor. And my mom was like, those patterns have been here the whole time. <laughs> I was like, okay. So that's when I really started to notice the gene therapy working, and that was really cool. Fast forward a few weeks, we go home and I see the moon for the first time at a performance, which was absolutely amazing. I was at this amusement park called Adventureland, and I performed there every Wednesday nights during the summer. And this one night, I'm on the side of the stage. It's an outdoor thing. I'm looking up at the sky, and they're calling my name on stage. Christian, Christian, Christian. I'm not paying attention. I'm looking straight up at the sky. And the MC of the show comes down. I was like, Christian, it's your turn to perform. You got to go up. I was like, is that the moon? It was probably one of the biggest nights in my life. I don't think I'll ever forget that night. Before gene therapy, when I found out that I was going to go completely blind by the time I hit age 15 to 30, I was terrified of losing everything that I had seen. I I didn't want to forget what my mother looked like. I didn't want to forget what my family looked like. And now that 
I got this gene therapy. I don't have to. Dr. Bennett and Dr. Hyde, they're kind. They are, like I said, incredible, incredible people. I really can't emphasize that enough. Like, they really changed my life just because of the human beings that they are, let alone the doctors that they are, but just because of the human beings that they are. And also, gene therapy could pave the way for other sciences, other diseases. There's so much that could come out of this. And it is absolutely incredible what they did with this technology and the science. And honestly, it blows my mind. You know, I'm just this 18-year-old. I don't understand. It blows my mind. It is so cool. I hope you'll take two things away from today's episode. First, that these cures are about human beings people, folks whose lives are made profoundly different because something happens in science that translates into their health. And second, that achieving that kind of a breakthrough takes years, dedication, smart people who work endless hours, sometimes with enormous frustration, frustration because what they thought would work didn't and they got to go back to the drawing board. Frustration because they've got to deal with government bureaucracies to get approval. Frustration because funding dries up just as they think they're about to make a breakthrough. And the pioneers, the folks who courageously go out there year after year, because of their dedication, change lives. It's always amazing to me to have a chance to share with you the kind of personal stories where suddenly... A young man who couldn't see looks at the moon for the very first time. To listen to a mother who had no hope for her daughter, but absolute determination that she would find hope. This is what Health in America is about. Finding the cures, helping people have complete lives, having people have healthy, long lives. When I was speaker, we doubled the funding for the National Institutes of Health. The number of people alive today because of your generosity as a taxpayer is astounding. And over the next 20 or 30 years, the number of breakthroughs are going to grow and grow and grow. Whether it's Alzheimer's or sickle cell anemia, hemophilia, cancer, again and again, you're going to see story after story. And I hope you'll hear that people can be saved. But it's important to remember that at the end of the laboratory is not a cure. At the end of the laboratory is an idea, a breakthrough, a new scientific discovery. And then from that point, the treatment in your doctor's office requires additional money, additional focus, additional specialties. And that's why this unusual American model of a public-private partnership where publicly we fund enormous amounts of basic research. And then privately, we raise the money, organize the entrepreneurs, and turn that basic research into cure after cure after cure. And it's that combination which has made us the health powerhouse of the planet and which offers us as a team a chance over the next 15 or 20 years to truly have breakthroughs on a scale that will seem like miracles. Thank you to my guests, Dr. Jim Wilson, Dr. Catherine High, and Dr. Jean Bennett, and Allison Barrent and Christian Gardino. 
You can see the books, articles, and documents that we relied on in researching this episode on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Westwood One. The executive producer is Debbie Myers. Our producers are Garnsey Sloan and Joe DeSantis. Our editor is Robert Borowski. Our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360, to Sanford Health, and to Westwood One's Tim Sabian and Robert Mathers. Please subscribe to Newt's World on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get entertaining podcasts. On the next episode of Newt's World, a remarkable, candid, and open conversation with Congressman Patrick Kennedy, someone who in his own life has had the challenge of addiction, someone who's been a great leader in terms of mental health parity, dealing with addiction, and trying to solve the problems of health care. I think you'll find it a fascinating and important conversation and one that you'll never forget. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From LinkedIn News, I'm Jesse Hempel, host of the Hello Monday podcast. In my 20s... I knew what career success looked like. In midlife, it's not that simple. Work is changing, we are changing, and there's no guidebook for how to make sense of it. Start your week with the Hello Monday podcast. Listen to Hello Monday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.